Previously in the Elendred. Alondra Ramirez arrives on Freya, the innermost planet in Wolf System, with the job of investigating a claim that a local aristocrat's android has begun doing magic. However, the android, Penelope, does not exhibit any talent for witchcraft. The new Lord Regent of Magical Affairs, Gabriel Burns, decides to destroy the android, but Alondra is warned of his arrival by her friend, Jonathan Harper, the prodigal son of a terraforming dynasty, who has carried a torch for Alondra since they first met. Alondra rushes to Penelope's aid and helps her escape. Meanwhile, on Tyr, the next planet out, Norel Peters and Bridget Lozano are trying to lay low following Bridget's criminal mass enchantment in the city of Halsburg. But when they visit a local magician to pick up a spell book Norel commissioned, they discover that the mage has been gruesomely assaulted. Unbeknownst to them, Bridget has been identified to the authorities by an Afghan woman named Safia. Safia returns to her apartment and reconnects with her siblings, for whom she gave up Bridget. Back on Freya, Alondra and Penelope are nearly grounded by an enchanted surface-to-air missile shot by Burns. At the last possible moment, Penelope conjures a bolt of electricity that allows them to enter Slip and flee the planet, revealing that she can perform magic after all. All right, Lenny asked, uh, so there are Afghans in this world. Uh, and yes, I think uh, people are rooted on Earth um, and we colonized the planets between sometime in the last 300 to 400 years. So there are Afghans, uh, there are people from every strata of civilization on Earth right now. Alondra is from Harlem. Um, Hi, my name is Thomas, and I am going to tell you a story. Before we get started, note that this is episode three, so if you aren't caught up, I'd recommend pausing here and listening to episodes one and two first. Also, since this is an original story with many characters, it may not be in their best interest to listen while you work, or while reading articles, or arguing with strangers online. In fact, the best way to listen to this episode would be while seated in the center of the floor in an enormous, empty warehouse. But it's ultimately up to you. I'm sitting in my apartment in Brooklyn. It's a little after 7.30 p.m., give or take. I have a glass of whiskey and my script in front of me. There is no music. There are no sound effects. But, if you like, you can imagine that we are sitting around a low-burning fire on the coast of Greece. You can faintly hear the crackling of the fire, the crashing of waves on a dark shore, and the distant hum of wind through the olive groves. But that's it. This is the Elendred. The Hyperion One is floating in the void. Its jacket of ice has been thawed off, and water droplets roll along the surface of the ship or float like bubbles into the expanse before freezing into blots of ice again. Alondra, in a red exosuit with a fishbowl helmet, is welding the crack in the main engine shut, her boots magnetized to the hull, and a safety cord clipped to the nearest utility ring. If it weren't for the grim silence of space, the Hyperion would look like it was hosting some kind of lazy river floating party. A long cable stretches from the side of the Hyperion to a ten-foot-long rust-colored engineering barge. Alondra finishes her welding, and lets the torch float from her hands as she transfers her carabiner from the utility ring 
to a transition cord. That's the exterior damage, Alondra says, a small pool of mist forming on the front of her fishbowl as she walks slowly along the transition cord to the barge cable, the welding torch in tow. Excellent, her cohort responds. Last thing's the fuel injection. One of the pintles is unresponsive. Luckily, it looks like we have a spare. Barge code? B-9. You know, she says, when Jonathan and I put this wreck together last year, I really didn't think I'd have to do it all again so soon, let alone in space. Jonathan made fun of her for making small talk with her ACI, but Alondra liked chatting with Dandan, even if he didn't say much back. She welcomes the distraction of the task at hand. Without it, she's afraid she might just replay the earlier events of the day until her brain collapsed. You can do magic. They were the first words out of Alondra's mouth after they'd entered slip. Penelope had looked frightened. Yes. They were still sprawled across the Hyperion's cockpit, shaken but unhurt. Alondra stammered. Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you... Why couldn't you... She trails off when it inevitably dawns on her. Penelope pulls her hair away from the back of her neck and turns her head, revealing the logo of Aphrodite Industries tattooed there, a haloed Venus symbol, the outer circle stopping just short of meeting the lower cross. Julian directed me not to before you arrived, she said. After they told him you were coming, he was afraid of what would happen if I corroborated his report. She pushed herself up then, gingerly, and leaned over the Hyperion's dash. I guess he just wanted things to stay how they were, she had said. Almost unthinking, Alondra had reached out and touched the symbol, the manufacturer's mark on the back of Penelope's neck. She could still feel the muscles tensed ever so slightly beneath the skin. It was convincingly human-like, and Alondra had recoiled quickly. Are you going to turn me in? Penelope asked. Alondra looked hard at Penelope for a long moment. What other schools of magic have you studied? She asked, finally. Besides conjury, you mean? Yes. Which disciplines have you been practicing? Penelope's eyes had remained locked with Alondra's. All of them, she said. They hadn't spoken since then. Dandan warned that they were exiting the safety zone, which meant they risked slipping into something too big to slip past. That was not survivable, so Alondra had shut down the slip drive, pulled on an exosuit, and begun repairing the Hyperion's rocket engine. Now she was almost done. It's a good thing, too. As Alondra bolts in the access plate, her suit beeps a signal that her air supply is starting to run short. She pulls herself back out to the barge to put away her tools, a gradual wash of relief passing through her. It had been worth doing the refurb herself. She allows herself a tingle of pride. Even Jonathan would be impressed, she thinks. Dandan's voice sounds suddenly in her earpiece. Arcanist! I'm headed back in, Alondra exhales. She climbs up onto the barge and replaces her power tools. Yes, Arcanist, I don't mean to alarm you, but... Something is coming towards us, very fast. Shit. Alondra looks around, but sees nothing. Regency ship? 
No, Arcanist. Dandan's voice sounds sped up slightly. In fact, he continues, it's not coming from the direction of Wolf's system. Alondra shivers reflexively. Where is it coming from? Far space. I don't know. Of all the times for her headset to be broken. Do you have a visual, she says? I'm eyeballing it out here. I need you to describe it to me. Dandan's speech is halting. It's not a traditional interstellar vessel. It's thin and serpentine. Dandan. Alondra tenses. That sounds like a... Dandan cuts her off. It matches the description of an early century dread. Alondra was born on the day of the RIF's surrender, so the war between worlds lurked in the corners of her childhood like a ghost. Alondra grew up learning about the war secondhand and current events, in the abstract, impersonal way that recent atrocities are taught. But the truth was out there, or at least some reflection of the truth, and Alondra looked for the truth wherever she could find it. What she found was this. The Russians had deployed a particularly deadly weapon during the war between, which was designed to target fleets in orbit, a self-sustaining interplanetary menace that could eat spaceships alive. Or so it was said. The weapon was called Dread, but soldiers took to just calling them eels. Unmanned, uncontrollable, and capable of supersonic speeds, the eels rammed into ships and tore them apart from the inside out. They ranged from smaller, less dangerous scouting drones to 500-feet-long juggernauts that spewed electromagnetic radiation but all of them were composed of millions of adaptive cell-like microbots. The three republics hunted them all down and destroyed them after the Juno Convention. But there was always the fear that some of them had gotten away, following some unknown programming out into deep space. Alondra feels the breath tighten in her chest. She has to remind herself that she still has 15 minutes of air left, as sweat prickles up and down her arms. She presses a button, causing a motorized metal cover to start rolling out over the equipment. How long till it's on us? 97 seconds, Arcanist. Should I run diagnostics and prepare to enter slip? Alondra looks back at the Hyperion. It floats serenely before her, and yet far away, the cable connecting it to the barge winding out a hundred feet or more. Alondra's breath quickens. That's... that's not enough time. Dandam, I can't get back to the ship that quickly. 90 seconds, Arcanist. Alondra slams her palm on the controls, halting the cover slat's motion, and pulls herself along to the center of the barge. Put me through on the main intercom. Penelope, you there? After a moment, Penelope's voice replies, wavering slightly. Yes, I'm here. Alondra releases the clasps on the long yellow barrel of her railgun. She pulls it from its spin, plugs it into the barge's power cable, and magnetizes its base to the barge cover. All right, good. I need you to go to the cockpit and get ready to enter slip. If Dandan can't sound to three, you go. What? Penelope is incredulous. Without you? Alondra kicks her right foot into the stirrup of the gun's rotating base. Just if he, I can't stop this thing, listen carefully. The override phrase is rational marigold Tokyo denim. Penelope's incredulity morphs into fear. What thing? What, what are you talking about? Just be ready. Below the gun, there are several cases of ammunition. Alondra selects a box with two bullets in it, 14-inch long, armor-piercing, explosive rounds, and loads one directly into the chamber of the railgun. Her fingers pass over Jonathan's signature, inscribed along the barrel, and she murmurs, Thank you. She peers through the scope. It's difficult, 
She has to press the rubber sight up against the glass of her helmet and then squint through it. Am I looking in the right direction, Dandan? I'd like to shoot this thing. I don't know, Arcanist. The dread is coming at us from 327 o'clock and at an incline angle of minus two degrees. It's small, at least. Only about 40 feet, at my estimation. Alondra glances back at the Hyperion and adjusts, swinging the barrel of the railgun a few degrees to her right and down. She peers through the sight, moving the gun in small circles, trying to place something in the expanse. There. The border of the scope lights up red. The dread's flat, shark-like nose is making a beeline for them, glinting dully in the Hyperion's work lights. Sweat rolls into Alondra's eye, and she blinks it away. I can't believe this thing drifted all the way out past Wolf's system. Twenty seconds, Arcanist. You'll only have one clean shot. Better make it count, then. Alondra turns a dial, setting the railgun to its highest energy setting. Penelope, remember, enter slip when Dandan gets to three. She takes three deep breaths, finds the dread in her sight, and pulls the trigger. The explosive force of the shot is eerily silent, even as the rifle hums with vibration under Alondra's gloved hands. The force of the expelled round nearly throws Alondra from her makeshift turret, as the entire barge begins to spin. Her right boot catches painfully in the stirrup, and Alondra grunts in exertion, tightening her grip. She struggles to keep breathing. She can feel the blood rushing to her head as the galaxy spins around her. Her vision blurs, and she can feel darkness tugging at her mind, pulling it backwards into nothingness. You missed, Arcanist. Dandan's voice is tinged with sadness, and for a moment, Alondra marvels at the absurdity of her artificial cohort's artificial regret. Ten seconds. Summoning all her strength, Alondra reaches down and grabs the second round. She pushes it into the chamber of the rifle, looks up, and tries to keep the bile from rising in her throat. Hyperion, space. Hyperion, space. Hyperion, space. In her last moment of consciousness, Alondra throws her body weight to the right, swinging the railgun 180 degrees as the barge spins her upside down to face the eel, huge and barreling towards her. She pulls the trigger and blacks out. The first thing she sees when she opens her eyes is Penelope, staring concernedly at her. She's wearing the other spacesuit, the blue one. She must have come out and got her. You didn't go into slip, Alondra says, thickly. Her head is pounding. No, you got it. You got it, and you stopped the barge from spinning. Alondra rubs her brow. So, the dread, she begins. Blew past us, Penelope finishes. What was left of it, anyway? Alondra places her head in her hands. No one's going to believe us. She thinks back to the last moment before she lost consciousness. There had been something odd about it. There was something daubed upon the dread's broad face in faded red and yellow paint. A bird of some kind. Alondra, there's something else, and I'm, I'm so sorry. I know this complicates everything. I mean, I don't even know how he found your ship. Alondra squints at Penelope. What? He just appeared while you were out doing repairs. He must have followed me somehow. Alondra raises a hand. Penelope... What are you talking about? Penelope steps aside. Standing behind her, draped in the dull brown invisible duster, is Henry Petraeus. 
Jonathan Harper sits alone at the bar in a dimly lit joint called the Badlands Bar and Grill, watching NetVision live on the big screen. The news broke around midday. No official Regency announcement yet, but someone in local law enforcement must have guessed at the payday for an exclusive story on a confiscation of dangerous artifacts mission gone awry. A young man with a slightly pinched face enters the bar, and Jonathan jumps to his feet. Hi, Ken. The man sees Jonathan and frowns, then crosses the bar to him. Jonathan, I have to say, I really didn't expect to see you ever again after you bailed on our final seminar. Jonathan's face falls, the hand he'd extended to shake, dropping back to his side. I... I bailed on our final seminar? You bailed on a lot of things, as I remember. Hiken smiles. I guess I shouldn't expect you to remember them all. Jonathan is nonplussed. Jeez, I'm... I'm sorry, hi. Honestly, I didn't even... Th that wasn't cybernetics, was it? It was. Shit. Jonathan smiles uncomfortably. Can I buy you a beer? I don't drink. Can I buy you a villa? Hiken makes a face. Only you, Jonathan. I can't believe I have to explain this to you, but throwing around your family's money does not an apology make. Jonathan laughs. Okay, let's start over. Hi, thank you so much for meeting with me. How have you been? Haiken Morimitsu was a little older than Jonathan when they were at university together, but they were the two youngest people in the program. Jonathan dropped out. Haiken stayed. Jonathan went to Earth to pursue an apprenticeship in interstellar engineering. Haiken stayed. Look, I'm on a short lunch, so just tell me why I'm here, yeah? Haiken slides onto a bar stool and orders a water as Jonathan sits back down beside him. You've heard the news, right? Haiken nods. I have. Aren't you guys freaking out? Haiken shrugs. The year after I joined Aphrodite, three of our manufacturing partners fell out from under us. It took us two years to produce another android. But we did. Bad things happen, but we have something that always keeps us going. Jonathan cocks an eyebrow. More investment capital than you know what to do with? Haiken makes a pitying face. Dedication, Jonathan. This is one of yours, though, right? Jonathan indicates the news screen. I'm not making that up. If Mr. Petraeus is to be believed, Hyken follows Jonathan's finger dubiously. The company is very careful about our clients' privacy. I've never known their identities. Until now, I guess. So you don't know how many androids you've made in total, or where they ended up? Hyken narrows his eyes. He asks, Why do you care? Jonathan takes a breath. Alondra, the Arcanist, is a friend of mine. I'm not exactly sure what her plan is, but I'd like to know what she's got herself into, especially if these things turn out to be dangerous after all. Hyken frowns at his water. Jonathan, I don't think I can help you. He stands. Jonathan stands, too. Don't go back to work today. Hyken snorts. <laughs> what? Jonathan speaks quickly. I don't know how much you keep up with politics, but this new regent? I've read up on him, and he's bad news. And not just for magic. You ever heard of a law firm called the Foundation for Ethical Advancement? It's a nonprofit he founded that torches tech companies like yours in court. 
They seek damages on the basis of economic displacement, unaccounted for externalities, anything. It's fucking insane. Neuronetics, Cyrus Corps, companies that were utterly liquidated when he went after them. Up-and-coming CEOs reduced to nothing. Engineers jailed for criminal negligence. So, play hooky. Help me. Help the Arcanist. Help your fugitive android. Haiken looks quizzically at Jonathan, very much taken aback. Then he looks down at the floor. His shoulders shake. Jonathan realizes he's laughing. <laughs> Look, Jonathan, <laughs> I actually like you. You're smart, and you were a great lab partner, actually, before you left. But you don't know what it's like to pour years of your life into a company, building something greater than yourself. Haiken steps forward and pulls a pad of paper from his pocket. If you really want to help, get on the next carrier to Isa. We're building a new facility there. One of the founders, Theolis Washington, he's overseeing it, and they could use someone like you on the ground. Maybe I'll even see you out there. He rips the note out and hands it to Jonathan. I really shouldn't be telling you this, but I'm pretty sure we made an android for him too, right after I joined. I remember they were jumping through hoops for months to get the IRN to approve shipping the thing. Jonathan looks down at the name and address. Thank you. I, I mean, thank you. Haiken rolls his eyes. I'm going to lose sleep over this, I can tell, he says, then turns and makes his way out of the bar. It's nighttime on Tyr, and Safia is currently losing sleep. She often does, though. Nightmares are frequent visitors, filled with dark, amorphous shapes that appear suddenly, pulling apart the walls of her apartment and swallowing her alive. She lies on her bedding, eyes open, feeling one such nightmare tugging at the edges of her consciousness, in that particularly noxious state of wakefulness where you know exactly what sort of horrors await you if you allow yourself to drift off. Sometimes this feeling goes away. Sometimes it doesn't. Finally, she gets up, lets herself out of the apartment, and walks to the kitchen. She tries to turn on the lights, but the power must be out. She finds her way to the sink in the dark and splashes water on her face, then returns, rolls out her rug, and prays. The other non-assimilates all agreed that five times a day was the thing, though occasionally someone would say six. One of them even had a printout of the Quran that they said they'd found on the deep net, but there was no way of knowing if it was authentic or not, or if the translation was any good. So there was some disagreement about when those five times were supposed to be. Safia typically prayed when she woke up, after lunch, before and after dinner, right before bed, and a sixth time only if she had nightmares. Sometimes it was less, though. The man who owned the bakery where she worked was uh, good about most things, but he didn't like praying. So when she had long shifts, she would pray silently to herself in snatches of time alone, checking on the ovens or while cleaning the toilets. After Safia is finished, she still feels the tingle of dread in the back of her mind and wishes she wasn't alone in the apartment. Yusef and Kamar must both be working. She pulls clothes on and wraps her hijab around her head, lets herself out quietly, and walks down the hall to the fire escape thinking that perhaps she can practice some force shells. That's what she called them. She was sure official magicians probably had their own word for it, but she had taught herself by throwing stones over her head and deflecting them as they came down at her. She pushes the window up 
and slides out over the ledge onto the metal grate of the fire escape. It's incredibly cold, and there's frozen snow up and down the handrails. A small pile of stones sits in the corner of the brick window. But as she reaches to pick one up, voices drift down to her from the roof. Kamar's voice, and Yusuf's. How can you be so sure? Yusuf says. Because you'll go through security, Kamar answers. There will be lots of people around. I don't want to get shot, Yusuf says. Safia's eyes widen. She strains her ears, but she can't make out Kamar's reply. Slowly, she edges up the fire escape stairs, taking steps as slowly and quietly as possible. She's a single flight down when she stops to listen again. Kamar's tone is matter-of-fact. People will pull out their handsets and take videos. You'll get posted on NetVision and Polero and Galacticat. You will make people face our pain. But they'll arrest me, Yusuf grumbles. You'll have to be quick. These videos get cut down to 15 seconds anyway when they get popular. There's a pause before Yusuf says, What if they throw me in jail? Many great prophets and heroes have been put in jail for speaking the truth. But they won't, I promise. You won't be breaking any laws. Safia shivers and adjusts slightly. One of her feet goes out from under her on the icy metal, and she slams her shin into the step with a bang. She can almost hear Kamar and Yusef tense up. Hello? Yusef shouts. Yusef! <laughs> she tries to sound surprised. I thought you were at work! She ascends the stairs and climbs onto the roof, trying to ignore the throbbing pain of the fresh bruise. Yusuf and Kamar are bundled tightly. Kamar is twisting a ring idly on her finger. Yusuf is smoking a cigarette, which he puts out hurriedly in the snow. Safia latches onto this. Yusuf, how many times have I asked you not to smoke? Is, is that why you're out here in the cold? Safia looks with dismay at Kamar to say something indignant like, what were you thinking? But when her eyes meet Kamar's, the words die in her throat, and she's left with her mouth hanging open, looking pleadingly at her. Yusuf tugs at his beard ruefully. I'm sorry, it's just all the guys at work. Safia snaps her mouth shut and looks back at Yusuf. Well, come down and get some sleep, honestly. Yusuf grumbles unintelligibly as he descends the fire escape. It's freezing. Safia can't help shivering as she looks back at Kamar. Are you coming? She says, teeth jittering. Kamar looks evenly at her. I'm going to stay up here for a while. Thank you. Safia's eyes catch on the silver band around Kamar's finger. Where'd you get that ring? She couldn't remember if she'd ever seen her sister wear a ring before. Is it worth anything? Kamar looks at the ring as if she'd forgotten she was wearing it. I don't think so. I found it in a junk shop. Safia nods. Why was she asking about her stupid ring? What she wanted to say was, what in Tyr's name are you planning and why couldn't she know? But she doesn't find the courage to say it. So after a moment, she turns and follows Yusuf back into the apartment. On the other side of the planet, Norell bandages the archmage while Bridget paces around the library. What the fuck do we do? We'll call the Regency from the hospital, 
Nurel wrinkles her nose as she examines Bohemir's stubs of arms, cut off and scorched black just below the wrist. Bohemir's tongue has been cut out as well. He's still barely conscious, his chest shaking as he takes shallow breaths through his nostrils. Whoever attacked him must have wanted him to live, but barely. Norell grimaces. A splatter of track marks were blotched across the mage's arms. Bridget suddenly collapses to her knees and retches, a thin yellow bile splattering on the stone floor. Norell rolls her eyes. Grow the fuck up. You've seen worse. No, I fucking haven't. Bridget coughs. There are tears in her eyes. I didn't work on a death squad like you. Neural grinds her teeth and illuminates her armlet. Wormwood, call an ambulance, assault victim. As her cohort rattles off a confirmation, she stands and goes to the desk on the far side of the room. She picks up a couple books and examines their spines. What are you doing? Bridget chokes. Bozidar Bohemir is one of the most famous living beyonders. Neural casts her eyes around the bookshelves. She notes the places where books have fallen against each other, over suspicious spaces of dustlessness. All the books on theurgy are missing, including the spellbook I commissioned. Nurel unclips a canteen from her pack and returns to kneel next to Bohemir. She casts a disjoining over the water, then splashes it on Bohemir's face, causing him to sputter and choke as his eyes fly open. What the fuck are you doing? Bridget scrambles to her feet. First the Tome of Shadows, now this. Either someone is targeting me, or they're gathering as much knowledge about summoning Bayons as they can. Nurel grabs Bohemir by the jaw and forces him to meet her gaze. Who did this? Bohemir's eyes roll towards Bridget. Bridget takes a step back. Oh. She can feel her interference humming with activity as something tries to get in. A magical signature that she hasn't felt since Texas. Norell looks between Bohemir and Bridget. What's going on? Cautiously, Bridget moves her hand behind her back and suppresses her interference with a gesture. The projection immediately takes, an image suddenly visible in front of her as if it were overlaid on top of the world in a very wobbly AR. Bridget falls against the wall, rubbing her eyes. Norell stands. Are you reading his mind? Bridget shakes her head. Mind readers are either frauds or party clowns. Norell looks back at Bohemir. Then, he's projecting an image right into my eye. It's an old coyote trick for giving silent instructions. Fuck, that hurts. Cut the brightness. The image dims. When Bridget closes her eyes, it's easier to make out. I, I see, I see a woman in a red coat. Hard to make out any details. Dark hair. The image melts and shifts. There's a... a crazy wound on her neck. The image suddenly is in motion. Bridget's body jerks. Gah, he cut her. Deep. And her bones are like... metallic? Like gold. Norell stands up. Did you say gold bones? She moves to Bohemir's desk, examining its cluttered surface again. Bridget's eyes are clamped shut, and her fists are pressed against the wall. It was a good cut. It should have killed her, but she heals. That the wound heals, and... 
Bridget hesitates. The images are muddled, flashing from moment to moment, confused. On her neck, between her shoulder blades almost, there's, there's a tattoo. Narelle's eyes fall on an antique hairpin in a black velvet case. It looks out of place, not to mention quite expensive among the strew of books and papers. She tilts her head at it, questioningly. What's the tattoo? she asks. Bridget squints her eyes shut tight, concentrating. Like the, the woman's symbol with another circle around it? Narelle reaches out quickly and pockets the hairpin, then lets out a bark of laughter. <laughs> what? Bridget's eyes snap open. It was on the news today, Narelle grimaces. She can hear sirens approaching from afar. Come on, time to go. Narelle starts down the stairs. Bridget's jaw drops with incredulity. What do you mean it was on the news today? Hey, 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 what's going on? Narelle doesn't even look back. It's Aphrodite Industries. A fucking sex bot did this. Bridget follows her, signing her interference back to life. What about the hospital? We're just going to leave? Fuck yes, we're leaving. Narelle tugs at her surgical mask, readying to pull it over her face again. There's a killer android on tier with the intention of summoning a bayon, and I'm not going to be here if that happens. You're the one person who should be here. Who else stands a chance of performing a binding? That gringo upstairs? Narelle ignores Bridget, adjusting the mask. Bridget reaches up and pulls it off her face with a snap of elastic. Hey, I'm talking to you. Narelle pushes Bridget, really pushes her. And when a magician really pushes you, you're likely to feel it for a long time. Bridget hits the scorched wall on the other side of the room before she can think and crumples to the ground. Anger and pain flood her mind, and without thinking, her lips begin to form the words of Kaze's subduction. But Norelle is ahead of her. As the incantation leaves Bridget's throat, she feels something clamp around it too, deadening the magic, deadening everything, like a vice inside her chest suddenly tightening. The spell ends in a gasp as she falls to all fours and throws up again, hot bile and blood. Norelle is standing over her. Don't presume to tell me my business again. I have jeopardized my career for you. I will not let you jeopardize my life. She grabs Bridget by the collar of her jacket and heaves her to her feet, face inches from hers. You aren't the only person I have to watch out for. Andrea Peters, 16 years old in a loose gray silk-screened tank top and exposed black bra straps, places a cigarette to her lips and inhales deeply. The dark circles under her eyes are her mother's, though they're mitigated by youth. Her hair is a tangled brown mess. She's ten light years away from her mother and four and change from Earth, but Chiron is her home and always has been. She's lying out on the sand at Paris Beach, near Juno, looking up at the greenish-blue sky and listening to the squawking of the gulls. In Andrea's opinion, it was definitely a mistake to introduce seagulls on Chiron. For whatever reason, the things really thrived here, gobbling up the specially engineered acid-resistant fish like popcorn. Andrea rolls over to one side and looks down the beach at Juno's gleaming chrome skyline. It's a nice day, perfect for ignoring all the homework she's not going to do. Her handset buzzes, 
a trendy pink oval that Owen says was definitely meant to remind you of a vulva, as if anyone needed reminding. She picks it up and opens the text message. Where are you? I'm here. Andrea stubs out her cigarette in the sand, collects her things, and returns them to her purse, a hinged wooden skull with a silver clasp between its teeth on a leather bandolier. Andrea throws this over her shoulder and trudges toward the lot. She sees Owen before he sees her, a dark-haired boy with a round face and a bomber jacket. He's idling on his bicycle, moving the kickstand up and down and up and down with his heel. When his eyes fall on Andrea, he waves stiffly. What's up? Andrea drawls, making a peace sign as she approaches the bike. Owen looks distinctly uncomfortable. As Andrea leans in to kiss him, he turns to catch it on his cheek, kicks the stand up again, and tightens his grip on the handlebars. Jump on. I want to go to Silverwood. Andrea leans back on her heels. What's a Silverwood? Why are you being all weird? Owen looks at Andrea. Look, I have something I want to talk about, but like, not here, okay? The wind is blowing Andrea's hair in her face. She pushes it out of the way angrily and makes a face. What's wrong with here? A long silence follows. Silence punctuated only by the gulls and the trembling of Owen's lips. This, us, it's just not working for me. The words scatter like pebbles on hot asphalt, a thin clatter. Andrea sways, looks up at the sky, laughs once. <laughs> what? I think we should break up. Andrea sits down on the cement sidewalk. Owen starts to get off the bicycle. Don't, don't come near me. Andrea, I'm sorry. I guess your image couldn't take the hit, huh? Thought it would be cool to date the demon girl for a few months, but then you realize what a drain on your social capital I was, huh? No, Andrea, just stay the fuck away from me, Owen. Andrea gets to her feet and starts walking off down the road. Her heart is hammering. Her stomach feels like it's twisting up against her lungs. She hears Owen swear behind her and tries not to look at him as he pulls up next to her on his bike. Andrea, I really love you, but... Andrea turns and slams the heel of her boot into his bike chain, tearing it off the gear and tearing a section of skin off her leg in the process. Owen and the bike fall onto Andrea, knocking both of them to the ground. Fuck! Andrea disentangles herself as quickly as she can. Tears are flowing freely down her face now, at least partly due to the singing pain in her leg. She wipes her eyes, smearing a long streak of mascara down her arm, and takes a deep breath. Owen! What part of stay the fuck away from me didn't you understand? Is this social dynamic too advanced for you? Figure it the fuck out. Andrea turns and begins to walk away, trying her damnedest not to limp. She scoffs humorlessly through her tears. Just what she fucking needed. One more way that Libby and friends can compare her to her mom. On Freya, Haiken drums his fingers against a desk. He checks the time on his armlet, stands, and moves towards the entry hall. A thin, polished gray obelisk stands outside the Aphrodite Industries headquarters, an aquamarine dome streaked with the pale reflections of clouds. No words are carved on the obelisk, just the necklace of Aphrodite, which is a necklace, by the way, not a hand mirror, as was popularized in the 19th century. 
the symbol is partly enclosed in a second circle. Just past the obelisk, there is a small lot with a single Regency vehicle parked by the wide glass entryway. Haiken steps into the waiting room and smiles graciously at the two officers. Welcome. My name is Haiken Moromitsu. I'm the head of engineering here. Eris and Kay stand and shake Haiken's hand. Eris is blunt. Regent's aide, Eris Dostoev. This is Lieutenant Kay Baring. Kay raises her eyebrows. Engineering, huh? We thought we'd have to fight through a crowd of marketing or public relations types to get to you. Haiken bows his head slightly. We don't have any of those types here. Seven years and we're still a very small operation. In fact, we have fewer than 20 full-time employees. Right this way. Eris and Kay follow out of the office and down a short hallway. I take it you know our business here, Eris Needles. It is important that you understand the gravity of the situation. I do, officer. Haiken looks back at them as he swipes a badge and enters a short code, unlocking a security door. It is my job to convince you that our androids are no more or less dangerous than you or I. The door slides open with a smooth swish. Haiken smiles. Welcome to the future, he says, and somehow makes it sound humble. The ROs step out into the main dome, a huge circular space illuminated by natural light filtering in through the smart glass overhead. The outer walls to their right and left are paneled entirely in magnetic ink displays, covered with diagrams, drawings, blocks of text, mathematical algorithms, and snippets of code. Eris walks to the railing and looks down at the stairs, dropping into the lower levels of the building, while Kay examines one of the display panels. What is all this? Haiken steps beside her. It's pretty much everything. Designs, documentation, source code, hardware, manufacturing details. We have some machine intelligences crunching most of it, looking for optimizations. It all automatically updates when they find one. This is incredible. Kay turns and looks out across the dome. You can see clear across to the boards on the other side. Haiken nods. We wanted to create a workspace where immersion in the project was not only essential, but beautiful, literal, even social. Eris rolls his eyes and turns to face them. Do you have any works in progress for us to examine? Haiken leads them down to the lower levels of the building. We've averaged about one a year since I joined. That probably seems slow to you, but it's a whirlwind every time. Six months is spent just in design, and iterating over the personality and physical model with the client, which we do in AR. It's an... Haiken pauses on the stair, bringing Eris and Kay to a halt. I won't say that it's like giving birth, but it is like watching a child grow up. It's a spiritual experience, and a challenging one. They continue into a well-lit workroom with a large glass chamber in the center. Kay feels a shiver go down her spine as she approaches it, but there's nothing inside when she peers in. The body is composed of proprietary nanotech fibers. We've simplified the organ structure. They don't need food, but they can taste. We suggest they purge following a meal. Their digestion is really only meant to handle waters and oils, which can be sweat out through the nanofiber or expelled in urine. We're testing a new approach now, but historically the bones take the longest to manufacture. They're titanium gold alloy, printed on Lei Kung. And you don't use magic at any step of this process? 
Kay cocks an eyebrow disbelievingly. Haiken shrugs. I'd be happy to provide you documentation on our employees. We do pretty thorough background checks. No one on our staff is a magician. Eris nods. Do that, and we'll need the locations of all your current androids in the field. Haiken's face falls. I... I'm afraid we don't have that information. Anonymity is key for our customers. We ship through a dark carrier and wipe all personal data from our systems. At that moment, the door opens, and a broadly built woman with long, wild hair enters the room. The woman's age is very difficult to place. Her skin hangs in spotted folds from her arms. Her face is so wrinkled, it gives the impression of crumpled and coffee-stained paper. But Eris guesses that she must have had her eyes replaced, because they shine as bright as anything, dark and hungry and young, and indeed, so is her whole demeanor. Haiken gestures to her. Ah, you should be honored. You are about to meet one of the most intelligent people in the universe. This is Dr. Macebeth Clark. Eris takes a step back. Macebeth Clark? Haiken is surprised. You know her? It seems highly unlikely, Macebeth smiles humoringly. I have lived a fairly obscure existence. Eris can barely keep his jaw from shaking. He reaches out, as if for balance, and Kay steps forward to steady him. Sir? I'm sorry. Eris can't take his eyes away from Macebeth's. He grinds his teeth together and sniffs, pulling away from Kay. I'm sorry. I read your book some years ago and found it very moving. Understanding dawns on Macebeth's face, and Eris looks away sharply. We've gotten all we need here. Haiken steps forward. But uh, we've barely started. It makes no difference. Eris's voice is cold and sharp. We have no choice but to shut down your operations. What? Haiken's face flushes. You can't do that. We most certainly can, and here's the warrant to prove it. Eris retrieves a thin, dark blue envelope from his pocket and throws it onto a nearby table. It may only be temporary, but until we have ascertained the threat that your androids pose, we cannot allow you to continue making them. I understand the Lord Regent intends to hear testimony on the matter this coven. But, in the meantime, a regiment is on its way to quarantine the building. I suggest you use the next 30 minutes to brief your staff and evacuate. Good day. Macebeth's voice nearly makes him jump. Officer. He turns. Dr. Clark? Your copy of my book. Did it have a red cover? Eris breathes heavily, eyes flitting between her and High Ken. I seem to recall it was green, Dr. Clark. Excuse me. Haiken sinks into a chair. What are we going to do? Macebeth is frozen, frowning after the departing figures. Green, she says. Haiken looks at her. What? Macebeth inhales deeply. I just... They never published my book with a green cover. Not that I know of, anyway. Macebeth shakes her head and flashes a worried smile at Haiken. 
we have half an hour, and they don't know about Theolus. Rally the troops. Wipe all the local servers. We don't want to give them anything they don't already have. It's a full day before Safia finds the courage to confront Yusuf. Kamar and Yusuf often leave for the night together, but tonight Safia makes a big show of needing Yusuf's help cleaning the communal kitchen, and Kamar leaves wordlessly while they work. Why tonight of all nights? Yusuf grumbles as he wipes down the oven rack. He throws the towel on the ground and gets to his feet hurriedly. There. Safia watches him carefully. He sees this, makes a face, and crosses his arms. What? Safia says, You know you can talk to me about anything, right, Yusef? Silence. What were you and Kamar talking about on the roof last night? Yusef looks at her sharply. How much did you hear? Safia backpedals. Nothing really, just something about... She searches for the right word to key into. Something about jail. I just... You're not doing anything illegal, are you? No, Yusuf grumbles. I'm not doing anything illegal. Safia frowns. Why were you talking about jail, then? Yusuf meets her gaze, and Safia tries desperately to read him. She knows her brother trusts her, but there's something in the way of that. The sullenness he'd developed since leaving the reclamation camps. Yusuf, you can tell me anything. Kamar thinks you wouldn't understand, he says finally. Safia throws her hands in the air. How can I understand if you won't talk to me? Yusuf makes to leave the kitchen, and Safia surprises herself by reaching out and grabbing his arm. Hey! Yusuf looks down at her, surprised. Don't do this to me, Safia says. We don't keep secrets from each other. We can't. Do you hear me? Because we, the three of us, are family. No. Yusuf pulls his arm away sharply, and Safia recoils, shocked by the sudden anger and violence in his voice. Family is what the West took from us. The Americans and their allies have eaten away at our family until there is nothing left, taken us apart bit by bit, sons from their mothers, mothers from their sons, brothers, sisters, fathers. Family by family, the Republic has crushed us. Our faith, our family, gone now. Yusuf exits the kitchen and dons his coat. Safia follows him into the main room cautiously, watching as he ties a scarf around his neck and swings open the door, trying to think of something to say, feeling that anything she could say would be immeasurably insufficient. But Yusuf pauses in the door of his own accord, his frame outlined in the faint light from the hall. We aren't a family, Safia. Only the ghost of one. The door slammed behind him, leaving Safia alone in the dark. Luna has been in one of her moods. She spent the night sitting on the couch, crying at NetVision infomercials, and is now passed out on the couch, which really doesn't mean much except Andrea has to make her own lunch. Luna is her aunt, but she just knows her as Luna, perhaps because Luna has never been anything but Luna. Mom once described her as having a weak conscience, 
And while Andrea is not sure she can attest to Luna's conscience, she certainly has a weak everything else. If Andrea got sick for a few days, Luna would be sick for weeks. When Luna's cat disappeared, probably trapped and eaten, Luna refused to leave her room for a month. Andrea pulls the straps of her backpack tight around her shoulders and tries to ignore the sucking pit in her stomach. On second thought, maybe she'll just skip lunch. She slouches her way out of the house, trying not to wake her aunt, and begins the long walk to school. Palmenteras High School is on a hill, and she and Luna live on the bad side of it. Still not a terrible place to live, not like the neighborhoods even further west, but she's the middle of what's a distinctly upper-middle-class school district. As she goes through the metal detector, she catches a glimpse of Libby Ann and her friends, tittering behind their hands at her. Great. The breakup must have been big news on Attachat last night. Some VG jock asks her if Owen didn't find her horns a turn-on or something. Andrea ignores him and heads into class, only thinking for a moment that she wishes she really did have horns, the better to impale people who made these stupid jokes. No, she was a perfectly normal high schooler with a perfectly abnormal mother, and somehow it had become popular culture that she was some kind of unholy spawn of Lucifer. The day passes normally enough. Libby makes pointed comments in current events about how awful reclamation is and how anyone who is ever involved should be ashamed of themselves, but that's par for the course. Andrea spends lunch with her face buried in a fantasy novel about millennium-era vampires, but when the bell rings for fifth period, she notices that Libby and a couple of her hangers-on are staring at her. Andrea looks back down at her book for a few deep breaths, then back up, and no... They're all definitely staring at her. She flips them off. She tries not to think about it, but all through astronomy, she can feel them looking at her. And sure enough, they seem to be waiting for her on the back steps when she tries to slip away at the last bell. Andrea? Libby waves at her, as if they were friends. Andrea opens her eyelids wide at the ground, so at least Satan will know that she's absolutely not having this. Hey, Libby, she says trying to sound tired. Libby pulls her down the stairs and around into an alcove. If it weren't for Libby's demeanor, Andrea would be positive she was about to get beaten up. But Libby seems breathless and enthusiastic. Hey, you know Petrus and Jimmy, right? Yeah, hey guys, Andrea drawls noncommittally. Petrus is handsome, with long dark hair, but Jimmy looks like something you might find on the end of your fishing line. Petrus plays football, Libby plays class royalty, and Jimmy amounts to their court jester, as far as Andrea can tell. Libby attempts an expression of contrition. Hey, I just wanted to apologize for being rude and curvy today. That was totally uncalled for. It's not your fault your mom was in the army. Andrea looks between the three of them, searching for a smirk or other indication that this is all a joke. But there is none. Uh, Navy SEAL. Not really the same thing. Jimmy cocks his head to one side and looks at her appraisingly. Is it true that your dad's a demon? One of Andrea's earliest memories was when a girl in the second grade told her that her dad was a demon. She cried so hard that the school had to call her mom to come get her. But it wasn't until later that night when Andrea, eyes dry, had come downstairs and approached Norell. In the memory, her mom is impossibly tall, a giant at a giant table, illuminated island-like in the darkness of their living room. It was back when Luna still lived with her boyfriend in Seattle, on Earth, and her mom still lived at home. 
Mom, one of the girls at school said my dad was a demon. Narelle didn't look at her. She didn't like to look at her or talk to her very much after dark. Andrea remembered that. She just sipped from the glass in her hand and stared absently at the table. Was he? Narelle's nose twitched. Her eyes closed. She placed her glass on the table with a dull thud and looked at Andrea. Yes, she had said. Libby hits Jimmy on the arm. No, of course not. Are you retarded? Anyway, it's Bayon, right, Andrea? When you say demon, you sound like a religious natic from the Middle Ages or something. Andrea shifts on her feet. What do you guys want? Libby looks at Petrus. Well, the three of us have been talking, and we had this idea, but then we had no idea where to begin, and then, I don't know, we all heard about Owen, you know? Of course. Andrea turns to walk away. Libby backpedals. Oh, I mean, it's not about him. We just thought as part of things, I don't know, you could maybe get it to punch holes in his stupid bike tires or something. Petrus snorts, and Libby looks offended. What? Andrea juts her jaw forward. What it? What? Petrus shrugs. Just a small one. Steal some cash. Give people a scare. Andrea is beginning to feel very thick. What? She says again, and immediately regrets it when Petrus frowns at her, as if he were trying to figure out what she could possibly still be missing. Your mom's a famous beyonder. We want you to summon a bayon? Andrea takes a step back. All three of them are staring at her, just the way they were in the cafeteria. A number of possible reactions flip through her mind, including acts of physical violence, screaming, and walking away. But what she finally settles on is, Oh, yeah, I could help with that. Alondra's worst fears have been confirmed. A press release has been made revealing Penelope as the dangerous artifact, capable of unknown powers of conjuration, enchantment, and the like, and she, the first arcanist, has been implicated as knowingly harboring a fugitive. The press release is purposefully sensational and notably lacking in real information with no mention, for example, of whether Penelope is a homunculus, an enchanted robot, or whatever else she might be. And it's evidently gone out by quantum link to every planet in the system, and possibly beyond. She, Penelope, and Henry sit at the small table in the mess room. Alondra's finger is pressed to her temples, while Penelope watches her, brow knit. Penelope clears her throat. Well, what should we do? Alondra takes a long breath through her nose and passes her hands over her hair. I don't know. I feel like I've been drunk for the past 36 hours and I'm suddenly waking up with the hangover. Penelope looks down at the table and Alondra's eyes land on her. Can you get drunk? Yes. Julian has informed me that my digestive tissue recognizes over 300 different varieties of psychoactive compounds and adjusts brain activity accordingly. Alondra takes another deep breath. Okay, realistically, we can't outrun Burns. Or, I can't, anyway. I'm not technically Regency, but I still have to answer to them. So really, the best thing for you to do is get away from me. Penelope looks up at Alondra, eyes wide. 
get away from you. Where? I don't know. Alondra shakes her head. This is all, this is just all a lot for me to handle. She looks up to see Henry and Penelope staring at her and realizes suddenly that she's breathing too quickly. She takes another deep breath. First, everything that happened in Harperstown. Then, nearly getting torn apart by a decades-old Russian war machine. Now, your 13-year-old sort of son. I don't know. I don't know what to do with this. A long silence follows. Then Henry looks at Penelope. What's the worst punishment that can happen to a witch? Penelope clicks her tongue disapprovingly. Don't say witch, Henry. Dad says it. Anyway, what's the worst that can happen? Alundra rises to her feet. Excoriation, she says bluntly. Penelope throws a desperate glance at her before turning her attention back to Henry. It depends, Henry. Sometimes they put bad magicians to death, but not so much anymore. Henry makes a face and turns his gaze to Alondra. What's excoriation? Alondra looks out the slit window at the starry expanse. Excoriation is when they rip the magic out of you once and for all. It's one of the strongest sorceries there is. Usually takes three of them to do it. Penelope manages a thin smile of reassurance at Henry. So, you can't cast spells anymore, but you still get to live, so it's better than being burned or hanged. No, it isn't. Alondra's voice is like ice. She strides past them and off the grav pad into the central column. We'll microslip to tear in a few hours. I can't take you any further than that. Bridget and Norell begin their journey back to the Phantom the same way they left it, in silence, though perhaps a little more hastily. Two hours in, Bridget realizes that she hasn't eaten anything today and sits down on the ground. Norell turns without missing a beat and heaves her up by her collar again. Bridget tears herself away and sits down again, and Norell paces away and crosses her arms, surveilling the stone plains. The sunlight warms Bridget's leather jacket, even as a cool wind causes her to shiver, and she wraps her arms around herself. Even this close to Tyr's equator, the light of wolf always feels a little wan, as if stretched too thin. Bridget takes off her pack and removes the sandwich. She unwraps it and takes a bite, wondering if it's really that flavorless or if that's just a side effect of the injunction. This isn't the first time she's been strictured. It's standard procedure when arresting a non-licensed magician for a criminal offense. But the feeling is no less sickening for being familiar. Though there are no physical bonds involved, everything feels strained and muted. Even the deepest breaths feel shallow. And whatever flavor might have once existed in this cucumber and faux teen sandwich is undetectable. Norell walks over and unslings her pack, removing her sandwich and tearing a bite out of it. The wind blows her short hair about, and she narrows her eyes against it to look back out towards Galen's lock. Looking up at her in her dark green khakis, one leg cut off above the spring-loaded prosthetic, and her tight military thermal top, Bridget finds herself thinking that Norell is oddly handsome. Considering her diminutive size, she must really have been an amazing soldier. And whatever horrors that had entailed, she had endured them. She had survived. And what had Bridget done? Thrown her weight around El Paso for a few years and gotten herself nearly killed or excoriated. 
Who do you have? Bridget asks, raising her voice against the muted feeling of the injunction. Norell frowns at her. What? You said I'm not the only one you have to look out for. So, who is it? Norell peels at the brown paper around her sandwich, but she doesn't respond. Bridget shrugs. I don't have anyone, she says. Norell finishes her sandwich and crumples the paper in her hand. I know, she says. Come on, let's get off this damn planet. It's another hour of hiking up to the plateau. The sloping stone, which felt gradual on the way down, is arduous now. Bridge is not sure how much of that's the injunction and how much is just the nature of things. At long last, she hears Norell say, There's the Phantom. They approach the ship, a near-perfect sphere of chrome that shines in the late afternoon sun, and Norell exhales loudly as she swipes her key across the entry panel. The bay door slides open to reveal five men in the blue and red uniforms of the Regency, sitting around a makeshift table, drinking and playing cards. Shit. Norell raises her hands in the air, and Bridget turns and starts running. One of the ROs flicks his fingers lazily, and she falls on her face, some invisible force tripping her up and keeping her down. Two men retrieve her, while the captain steps down out of the ship and handcuffs Norell. Sergeant Peters, you and your ward are under arrest. We're taking you back to Halsper to await a tribunal. What for? Bridget struggles against the RO's grip as they drag her back to the Phantom. The captain looks grim. Mass enchantment of free citizens and for negligence in your duties as ward and warden. Sound familiar? Yeah, that sounds pretty familiar, Norell mumbles under her breath. The ROs fling Bridget onto a crate and the captain slides the bay door shut. He grimaces humorlessly at Norell. It's a real shame, Sergeant. You used to be quite the hero of mine. Norell chuckles mirthlessly. <laughs> well, we all make mistakes. The faint hum of the ship's magnetic drive vibrates through the room as the phantom lifts off the ground and hurtles into the sky. Jonathan slams an armful of shirts into his suitcase and returns to his closet, eyes scanning for what he ought to know he needs. Archimedes, what's the weather like in Yokaido? Yokaido is in the southern hemisphere of Iza, where it is currently late spring. Yokaido is expecting sunny days between 60 and 70 degrees. Great. Jonathan throws a big fur-lined jacket he'd been holding across the room. Book me a passenger ticket on the next freighter headed that direction. Then... Open up a private voice call through the soulmate. Channel open. You can begin your secret message now. Jonathan leans excitedly over his terminal. Alondra, it's me. Obviously. Uh, listen, I shouldn't be telling you this, but I know where you can find out more about the androids. Not just Penelope, but all of them. They're opening a new factory in Yokaido, out in a Matarasu system, with uh, someone named Theolis Washington. Meet me there. I'm hopping the next freighter. He goes to shut it off, but hesitates. And, uh, I... I hope you're safe. He ends the call. An abrupt rapping at the door takes Jonathan by surprise. He is rarely disturbed here in his workshop, which doubled as his rather lavish living space. 
Archimedes? Who is it? I don't know, sir, his cohort replies. There's been some kind of system override of building security. What? Jonathan turns back to the door just as it swings open, and Gabriel Burns steps through it, followed by Eris and four other officers. Mr. Harper, you are under arrest for obstruction of justice and hacking into an orbital control system. Jonathan's jaw drops open. He almost laughs. Oh my god, you're him! You're Gabriel fucking Burns! I recognize you from NetVision! Jesus, I feel like I should ask for your autograph or something. Gabriel cocks an eyebrow. Mr. Harper, it is not the time for trivialities. The charges leveled against you are serious. Sure, sure. Jonathan nods, zipping up his suitcase. He pauses, as if the thought had just occurred to him. Except, you aren't the police, so you can't charge me with any of that, can you? Gabriel cocks an eyebrow. You think you're safe because we aren't the police? You have directly countervailed an operation under the CDA. The Regency may not have the jurisdiction to take you off planet, but we are authorized to detain you until your criminal hearing. Jonathan takes a step back. You're serious. As serious as I need to be, Gabriel smiles thinly. You defied the law, and I take defiance very seriously. Jonathan makes a face. Where's your proof? The artifact was spirited away by Arcanist Ramirez, and you were the one who told her I'd come for it. We checked the orbital system logs and traced the unrecognized sessions back to here. Gabriel nods to Eris, who steps forward with a pair of handcuffs. Jonathan backs away. This is crazy. What does it matter if the robot can do magic? Why do you care? Gabriel frowns slightly and rubs his hands together in thought. Because, Mr. Harper, the world we live in hangs in a delicate balance. Some of us see the threads that hold it up, most do not. But, suffice it to say that some disturbances are graver than they first appear. Jonathan smirks. <laughs> Man, it must really eat at you that Alondra got away. Gabriel's eyes slide to meet Jonathan's, but he only flashes that tight-lipped smile again. On the contrary, I admire her ingenuity. But trust me, I will find her. I will destroy her kidnapped android, and I will strip her of her rank at the First Coven. Perhaps a long-term injunction would do her good as well. Jonathan's face falls. You can't do that to her. Gabriel places his tongue against his left canine and regards Jonathan coolly. You certainly seem comfortable telling me what I can and cannot do, but I can, and it may well be the best thing for her. I assure you, most people who learn magic on the streets never learn a proper respect for the craft. Jonathan feels rage boiling inside of him. Funny, he spits. I remember a speech earlier this year where you bragged that you taught yourself everything you know. Gabriel shrugs, spreading his arms in mock deference. Ah, yes, but I am not most people. Cuff him. Eris clicks the handcuffs into place around Jonathan's wrists. Once they're on, Jonathan shoulders Eris off, and Eris responds by shoving him into the ground, hard. Gabriel nods to Eris, casts one more vaguely amused look at Jonathan, then turns to go. 
Jonathan starts laughing. Quiet at first, then bursting into a full-throated chuckle. Gabriel slows his pace, frowns, and turns. What's so funny? Jonathan slides himself across the floor to sit up against his desk and jangles the handcuffs behind his back. Just how long do you think these will stay on me? Gabriel watches impassively, face motionless. Jonathan shakes his head. You sad, stupid man. You think you have power. Do you have any idea what my father's name means? The fortune we control? Terraforming contracts are fucking crazy. They had to change the standard invoice format just to fit all the zeros onto one line. I was born into more obscene wealth than you'd know how to spend. We could buy a space station out from under you and barely feel it. And you think you can arrest me? What, throw me in jail for intercepting your secret message? Jonathan leans forward. I'll be free before you clear orbit, and I will bury you. I'll make it my personal mission to obstruct and defy you at every turn, even if I have to buy every planetary rep in the galaxy to do it. Hell, it'll be easy. So I hope you're ready. If you haven't learned yet, you'll learn soon. Money is the only law that matters. Gabriel hasn't moved a muscle. Jonathan is breathing heavily, staring challengingly up at him. Finally, Gabriel sighs heavily. What a disgusting thing to say. In a single smooth motion, he pulls the revolver from his belt and fires it once, the crack of the gun blast reverberating through the workshop. As the echoes die, the arrows shuffle backward. Gabriel holsters his weapon, shakes his head, and turns on his heel, resuming his exit. Over his shoulder, he says, Call his father. Tell him what happens to men who threaten the integrity of the Republic. This was episode three of The Elendred. The show is written and created by Thomas Constantine Moore, produced by Janelle Yee and Toro Adeyemi, and edited by Max Bernstein. I want to thank my studio audience tonight, Lenny DeFranco, Chris Garber, Camille Sohit, Annie Daly, Charlotte Moore, Ben Che, Olivia Vadney, and Toro Adeyemi. Thank you for listening. This story will continue next week. Hey there, it's me again. Thank you again so much for lending your ears and imaginations to this project. One thing I missed in the outro for the first few episodes is a very important thank you to Joe Mendick, who did our theme music. The man is a shriek operator. This show is called Thomas Tells a Story. You can follow us on Twitter at TTAS Podcast or join the community on Reddit at r slash Thomas Tells. If you love this show and want to keep it going, there are a few things you can do to help. Most importantly, engage with us. If you have questions or comments, reach out directly on Twitter or ask a question in the sub and we'll try to address those questions on the air in a future episode. You can also leave us a review or a rating. And lastly, if you have the means, buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Thomas Tells. Thank you so much. See you next week.